Let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, and we'll we'll dive right in. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, for your goodness, and uh, for the opportunity we have to study here. Lord, I ask that we would be reminded, even afresh, of a the uh, proclivity we all have to sin, and uh, and uh, strengthen our resolve against it, and also give us gratitude for. Uh, what had to happen in order for our depravity to be overcome and so that we might uh, embrace uh, Jesus Christ in faith. And Lord, we ask that this might be an occasion here uh, for us to learn and to marvel as, as, as to what you're doing in your world. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, I believe we're at the uh, bottom of page 56, near the bottom, uh, two-thirds of the way down the uh, page. We're in this discussion here of total depravity, or the really we should say the extent of depravity in the human race. Started by talking about first letter A. This is one that's probably not too much of a debated topic, that sin touches all persons. Uh, everyone is a sinner. Usually you can, uh, most people find that to be unobjectionable. They, they've seen it. They know it. It's, they've experienced it. All persons are sinners. There may be a little bit debate here at times as to uh, when uh, some when this universal uh, expression of sin begins. Some perhaps think that uh, children, small children or infants, uh, have some sort of, a, of an innocence. But as we, we pointed out here, we're all born with sin. So that's not something that uh, is something that comes to us gradually or at some point in time. All of us are sinners. Uh, we did talk the previous week about the possibility that God might uh, in his, in his graciousness and his benevolence, and we're hopeful that he does, uh, saves those who are incapable of uh, expressing the faith necessary to salvation. Um, and, but, uh, uh, but the fact is, that is something that has to be overcome. And uh, so so uh, there has to be some sort of an overcoming of the imputation of Adam's sin. Adam, well, we have to have Christ's righteousness imputed to us um, and our sins, uh, the guilt that we have for our sins uh, transferred to him. And we also then have to have, uh, have, uh, have a new nature imparted to us. And that's true of whether you're a, a child or whether you're an adult. Uh, but we, uh, we spent most of our time last time talking about here inadequate views of total depravity. Uh, so not only does, yeah, we sometimes talk about the extensiveness of depravity, everyone is touched, but now we're talking about the intensiveness of total depravity. That is, it is total. Uh, there is no possibility uh, that anyone can do good at all. And we, we spent our time at the end talking about inadequate views of depravity, walked through the Pelagian view and the Arminian view, uh, as well as well as an in-between view, which we called semi-Pelagianism. And we, we looked at these and we said all of these are inadequate. Pelagius, of course, said that there is no depravity per se, only perhaps a tendency to follow the bad example of Adam, uh, but ultimately... There's neutrality. So grace is really unnecessary in the Pelagian view. Semi-Pelagian view says, goes a little bit further and says, uh, that it is, uh, perhaps 
a, a more of a crippling or damaging uh, effect of sin that inclines us uh, towards sin, but nothing that makes it necessary. Each one of us is able uh, to make at least the initial overture to God, and uh, God would meet us halfway. We looked at those and said the biblical material does not support that uh, view, these views at all. Arminian view came a little bit closer. Uh, Arminians, uh, you know, contrary to, to to popular opinion, Arminians do believe in total depravity and total inability, but uh, the tension is it's only hypothetical. Uh, that is, all persons are, in fact, born with a corrupt nature. However, uh Jesus' sacrifice gives to all men what is called prevenient grace. That is, a grace that goes before, a grace that actually makes it possible for depraved sinners to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. So, in the Arminian view, grace is necessary. Christ had to die in order to give even this initial expression of grace, uh, which we call prevenient grace. Nonetheless, uh, there is no actual experience of total depravity in the Arminian system. All people are capable to some degree of reaching out to God. So we, we summarize then with this chart in closing uh, these these four views, Pelagianism, Semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, and what we call Calvinism or Augustinianism, what we might call the Reformed view. That's pretty much the, uh, that is pretty much broadly held in all of the Reformed traditions, uh, whether we're talking Reformed or or Lutheran or or uh, Anglican, so that, so all of the branches of the Reformation would hold to this last category, which is our goal to then defend tonight. So the biblical description here of total depravity, middle of page fifty-six, is where we're starting with new material tonight. Okay. By the way, feel free to interrupt anytime you want to. Just holler out. Um, I actually have your pictures uh, on the side. I, I, I don't have quite the perfect setup yet. I'd like to have my uh, my screens up up and down uh, above the above and below the camera. But right now uh, they're side by side, and so uh, you guys are a little off to the side for me. So if you need to. If you want to interrupt, please, please do so. Do it, do it aggressively. Just holler out and say, "Hey, I've got a question," and we'll we'll give an answer as we're able to. Okay. So the biblical description of total depravity here. Uh, we want to start negatively by saying that total depravity does not mean that the unregenerate are never disposed to any righteous thing. Okay. Uh, we, we remember we talked about, uh, under the doctrine of anthropology, the doctrine of man, uh, that all humans, uh, are the image of God. We're made in the image of God with capacities, uh, among which are, uh, a capacity for morality. We have a ca- capacity for freedom. And so we understand, uh, that there is right and wrong. And there is a sense in which all of all people, even those who are described here in Scripture as unable of pleasing God, will still do things that correspond at least externally to the law of God. Okay, and so we see this in Romans two. Gentiles have a conscience; they have the law of God written upon their hearts, 
with the res- result that they do instinctively the things of the law. Okay, so there is there every every person is born with a conscience which tells them what's right and what's wrong. Uh, their consciences are constantly accusing or defending them. So there's there's this, as it were, the, the voice of God inside even the uh, the most destitute of persons that says this is wrong and correspondingly this is right. And so all persons have this conscience. All people know what is right and wrong. Luke 11 says, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Uh, we, we recognize that even though, uh, you know, some people are depraved, even the worst generally knows, you know, has some consideration for their own children. Uh, we, we, we find it sort of an extremely advanced kind of sin where a parent, uh, particularly a mother, would uh, neglect or abuse a child. Uh, but of course, it happens. But most of the time, uh, you find that parents generally are, are able to give things to their children. We also find that the unregenerate do things that are that correspond to God's standard. And there's this interesting statement here made in Matthew twenty three twenty three. The scribes and Pharisees tithe on mint and dill and cumin, things that they ought to have done. Uh, that, 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 that last line perhaps surprises us a little bit here. Uh, we, we tend to think of the scribes and Pharisees as all bad. You know, nothing they do is possibly good. But the, the, the fact of the matter is the scribes and the Pharisees were renowned for the fact that they, they towed the line with respect to the law. They did everything that the law said to the point here. Uh, that they actually would tithe on their spices. You know, I, I, I doubt that any of you have considered that. You know, you have a garden in the back, you know, in, on, in your backyard or something during the summer, and, you know, it comes time to give your offering on, on Sunday morning, and you say, you know, well, I, I made so much this week, you know, at, at my job. I should probably drop in so much into the offering plate. And, oh, by the way, we also got a dozen tomatoes. We probably ought to tithe on that too, you know. <laughs> probably none of it never crosses any of our minds to do that. Uh, but the Pharisees did, and what does God say? This is what they should have done. You know, this, this, this is this is the kind of attention to the law that God expects. Now, so what's wrong with the Pharisees if they're doing everything God expects them to do? Well, their righteousness apparently is as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says that, right? The, the idea here is that these righteousnesses, these, these things that correspond externally to the divine expectation are done, uh, you know, because of some sort of ill motivation. We, we don't know why they were doing it. They, uh, we have a sense here from the, from, from the rest of the scriptures that the Pharisees did these kinds of things in order to be seen by men. That's why they prayed in the temple, but even on the surface there, right? You know, praying in the temple is what you're supposed to do. And so they were conforming externally to the righteous expectations of God, but for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motives. And so for this reason, their righteousnesses, which are real, are as filthy rags before God. They are 
they are they're non meritorious do nothing uh to to contribute to their salvation okay so Total depravity does not mean that the unregenerate are never inclined to righteousness, that they never do things that are described in Scripture as righteous. We we don't even mean that the regenerate are deprived of natural ability or free will. I mean, we talked about that just a few minutes ago, but, uh, you know, the, the fact is freedom hasn't been lost in the fall. Freedom is essential to personhood. It's part of the image of God. And while his natural ability to make choices remains intact, the natural man uniformly chooses to act sinfully because of moral bondage. So there's even this ability, uh, in some sense, some sense of freedom that is there that allows a person to choose according to the dominant inclination of his nature. We also uh, have to conclude that the unregenerate are capable of knowing a great deal and have, even having Spiritual truth, right? They can know their Bibles well. Some have suggested, based on bad interpretations of texts like 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the man without the Spirit cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, that uh, in some sense the natural man looks at the Bible and, and he sees just chicken scratch on the page, uh, that he he can't make heads or tails of what's there. He can't put the, the words together into sentences and it can't make any sense of what the Bible says. And that's, that's, that's not true. I mean, an unbeliever can't, right? That he can look at the Bible and know precisely what it means. The problem is he doesn't believe it and refuses to submit to it. So there's, there's where the tension. It's not as though he can't know spiritual truth. He just can't submit to spiritual truth. So I say here, being dead in sin and having a darkened mind does not mean that the depraved are cut off from divine revelation or even that they are unmoved by it. You know, they can, they can read the Bible and it says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And they can say, you know, I, you know, I don't do that and I probably ought to. And, uh, they may be doing it for selfish reasons, you know. Because oftentimes that, you know, that, that golden rule gets turned around, right? Do unto others so that others will do unto you or, uh, or do unto others what others have done unto you. Uh, so there's, it's really easy to take that, that, uh, that golden rule and, and, and twist it around a bit. But an unbeliever knows what it means, knows the advantages of following the golden rule. In fact, uh, you, if you, if you would ask an unbeliever on the street, you know, tell me, Tell me a Bible verse from the Bible. You know, I mean, uh, what, 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 what does the Bible say? That's probably one of the first things on the list that they're going to come up with, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So people do know what the Bible says. They understand what it means, see the benefits of doing what it says, but they have an hostility towards it. That is, their crime is not to, not that they don't know what the Bible says or can't know what the Bible says, but that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness and exchange the truth of God for a lie. Uh, they understand it plainly, they see it clearly, but they don't accept it. So as Van Til notes, they of whom scripture says that their minds are darkened can yet discover much truth. And so total depravity doesn't mean that, uh, that they're, that 
they're just bricks. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's something that's important to us, right? Too, when we're, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're, we're going out to share the gospel with someone and, and, and oftentimes the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the caricature of this position is when you believe people are totally dead. So why would you bother saying anything to them? Why would you invite them uh, to embrace Jesus Christ if they can't? Well, the fact is they can hear. They can understand. They can process. They can feel the weight of biblical revelation and even know that it's the voice of God. And these kinds of things are the, are the very tools that God uses to make people wise unto salvation. We just recognize that apart from divine help, that is regeneration, the person to whom we are speaking is never going to respond. Nonetheless, that doesn't prohibit us uh, or make foolish the idea that we are sharing the gospel with them. So, so total depravity does not stop us uh, from sharing the gospel in any sense. Finally, the total depravity doesn't mean that the unregenerate are as bad as they possibly can be. Uh, we find, for instance, in 2 Timothy 3.13, that evil men proceed from bad to worse. Same thing we find in, you know, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Romans 1, right? They, they, they go from natural sins to unnatural sins and they, they advance to a greater and worse sins over the course of time. Is my, is my, is my, uh, is my feed coming through fine for you or am I glitching out? Okay. Sound good? Okay. There's some kind of noise, but I don't know if it's coming from you. Yeah, I, I was hearing it. I, I, yeah. I was hearing myself, sort of an echo of myself <laughs> every yeah. once in a while. But you're static. I didn't know if it was coming from somebody else that doesn't have the mute on. Yeah, I wasn't sure what it what it was. I, I I can hear it too. It's not it's not horrible, but it's a little bit of a distraction. So I I, I thought it might be me because I, I sort of hear myself echoing. But uh, it sounds like it's a gurgling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit of a gurgling echo, right? So, yeah, okay. Well, we'll 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 soldier on here and uh, see. Okay. okay, okay. So that's what total depravity doesn't mean. Now, what does it mean? So, what does it mean uh, when we talk about total depravity? You know, you're, you're familiar, of course, with the. Uh, uh, the, uh, acronym TULIP. Uh, this is the T, right? Uh, this is the T. Uh, and we understand that the scriptures teach, uh, that people are totally depraved. Uh, we could go further and we will uh, next semester, God willing, if we uh, continue on in this sequence, we'll talk about the doctrine of salvation and we'll talk about the, we'll start out with the Election, electing work of God that's done in eternity past, so unconditional election. But we're just touching the first of these points here tonight, total depravity. What does it mean? Well, it means firstly that sin has penetrated and affected the totality of man's being. So total depravity touches the whole of man's being without exception. It touches the body. Okay, we find this very true, uh, that uh, Persons throughout the globe have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. 
probably the idea here for sexual kinds of impurity, but uh, we probably don't need to limit it to that. Uh, there's there's all sorts of impurity, we probably put overindulgence and gluttony and, and all sorts of of, uh, of of pampering the body beyond that which God uh, allows us to do. Titus 3.3, 3, we were once enslaved to various lusts and pleasures of the, of the negative variety here. That, that word lust uh, can have positive implications in the Bible. It can be negative. So uh, it's, it's, it's based on what we're lusting after or what we find our pleasure in. So we can have positive lusts and pleasures. It seems odd for us to say, speak in those terms, to have, have good lusts. Uh, but it's actually the same word. Normally, when we're talking about something uh, pure, we talk about a, a desire uh, rather than a lust. But it's actually the same word in Greek. It's just uh, we we take it in English and talk about lusts, which are negative, and desires, which are positive. But uh, but we understand that there are negative desires and negative pleasures that all persons engage in to indulge their bodies beyond that which God allows. So the body, the will, here's this statement here in Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard spots? Of course, the obvious answer is no, rather a politically incorrect kind of question to be asked today, but that's, that's, that's what it is, right? Can a black person decide I'm going to be white today? Or can a leopard decide, you know, I don't want to have spots today, I want to have stripes instead. Instead, And the answer, of course, is no. And you say, well, why? Well, because that's that's their nature. That's how they're born. They, they can't be any other way because that's what Ethiopians are and that's what leopards are and they can't be other than what they are. And here's the, here's the, uh, the, the moral here. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil, probably stronger than just accustomed, which uh, perhaps might give the sense of something that's just a habit here. Uh, but based on the context here, it's our nature. Neither can we do good who by nature are evil. And that's the point. John 8 speaks about the fact that we are slaves of sin, that is our wills, are bent in such a way that we cannot help but sin. We sin instinctively, automatically, routinely, regularly, and we can't stop ourselves because our wills are touched by depravity. The affections here, the affections, we talked you know, earlier in the course about the difference between passions, emotions, and affections here, but, uh, you know, we could we could lump them all together into one blob here it, it, in, in this particular context. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. He's inclined to evil. From the day they're born, they're, they're inclined to be evil. You know, I've, I've got my little grandson, right? You know, he's he just turned two months yesterday. So everybody celebrates, right? Um, and, uh, and, and what he's already demonstrating his inclination to sin. If he doesn't get his way immediately, or if mom can't figure out what he wants, uh, the cries go from, please help, to, hey, mom, slap, slap, do something for me. You know, and, and, and even, even at that, even that early age, 
uh, that, that child uh, has an inclination toward evil from his from his very youth. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and is exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it? Um, and, and that's, that's part of the deceitfulness of sin, right? We don't even realize it. You know, how, how, uh, uh, David said in the end of Psalm 51, cleanse me from secret faults and from hidden sins. Uh, see if there be any wicked way in me. Try my heart. Why? Because he recognizes the nature of sin is to incline the person's affections towards things that they shouldn't be inclined toward, so much so that they've convinced themselves there's nothing wrong with it. And you've been there, right? You know, you, you, you get captured by sin and you've, and you've, uh, you've made some sort of an excuse, built some sort of an excuse for the sin that you commit. Uh, and you actually convince yourself, you know, you, you actually are, you, you become convinced by your own faulty logic. Um, and so there, there are, this, there, there's this deceit, uh, that is above all a self-deceit. You're deceived in your, in your own selves. Then also the mind, the way we think. Uh, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. You know, there's a state of minimability here. The mind is incapable of taking the information it has about God and using it to appropriate ends. Titus 1, those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. In fact, right, that's, that's where sin begins, right? Sin starts in the heart and comes out in the, in the life, you know, from, from within come evil desires and, 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 and wicked activities. And then Ephesians 4, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thinking being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of ignorance. So, you know, we we temper then the statement that we made earlier that unbelievers are able to understand what the Bible says. They they they're able to put the words together into sentences and know what it means. Nonetheless, they build some sort of a of a worldview in which obedience to what the Bible has to say is unnecessary. And and we, we do that, right? We build ourselves a whole alternative universe, right? A whole alternative worldview in which the Bible doesn't have to be obeyed. Perhaps it gives us selectively good advice that we we can use occasionally. Um, but but we we've created some sort of a, of a worldview in which either the Bible isn't true, it's only selectively true, it's optional, and we we convince ourselves of that. And so our reason is such that we're darkened in our understanding and excluded from the life of God because we've become willfully ignorant, if I can use that that adjective there. I guess Okay. Question then up till this point. I'm up for air here. This does the 
come to this question here, which we've addressed in some part already, and that is whether depravity prevents the unregenerate from engaging in thinking or understanding or reasoning. And as we've noted above, some texts do seem to make knowledge the property of believers alone, that, uh, that only believers can know God. And there's a sense in which, well, well, let's, let's read this and we'll explain it. The man without the spirit does not accept the things from the spirit of God, their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually appraised. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But you see the statement here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The implication would seem to be that if you have no fear of God, you can have no knowledge, right? Same thing in Colossians. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, usually we're okay with the wisdom part because wisdom is applied knowledge. So unbelievers may have knowledge, but not wisdom. But no, this passage says that all knowledge is hidden in Christ. And so the implication seems to be if you're not in Christ, uh, you don't have the mind of Christ, then you can't know anything. Same thing with Ephesians 4.17. The Gentiles are darkened in their understanding and have this willful ignorance. And so we might come away from these passages and say unbelievers you know, are, are, are completely clueless about what the Bible says. They don't know what the words mean, etc. But observation alone tells us that this isn't so, right? The pool of the unregenerate has produced some very profound thinkers who possess and utilize knowledge, even biblical knowledge, quite effectively, more effectively at times than believers do. In fact, you know, I've been in occasion in, in situations where I've I've had to uh, uh, you know follow up a a pastor perhaps that's been disgraced. Uh, even who's walked away from the faith. And, and one of the questions, uh, that, that I've, I've had to ask, answer several times is, okay, you know, you know, I came to this church for years and I learned under this fellow. I was even baptized by this guy and he walked away from the faith. How is this possible? I, I thought he couldn't possibly have the knowledge necessary. To teach me, he's an unbeliever. He, he, he's proven himself to be an unbeliever. How can this be? And, and the fact is, an unbeliever can know quite a bit about what the Bible says. So, so much, so much so that they're even able to teach what the Bible says effectively, winsomely, in such a way that people actually respond, you know? Um, and, and so, so, so we, we, we know this to be true. Why is this? Well, it's because they routinely borrow from God's one truth system when that data works for them. However, incidentally, to their advantage. So an unbeliever can deceive himself into into preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and does so for nefarious reasons. It's, It's a horrible thing, but we've seen it. It, it's happened in the church of, of God, right? The church of Jesus Christ. 
uh, where people who, you know, perhaps, you know, they've gotten into the situation. It's the only thing they know. It's the only way they can make money. And perhaps it's a way that they are, you know, something they're really good at. So they do it really well. So they can, you know, have a livelihood or, or whatever the case could be. We don't know what the, what all the motives might be. They, they could be all over the place. Um, but even Paul, right? The apostle Paul, uh, when he's, when he's, uh, uh, writing his letters, he, he, he is concerned that he might be discovered, uh, to be an insincere preacher of the gospel and be what he calls a castaway, you know. And he fears after he had preached to others, he himself might be discovered to be disingenuous. Um, and and he labored with that concern. I mean, the Apostle Paul, and if the Apostle Paul can think in those terms, how, how much more so the rest of us, right? Uh, we find that people who are unbelievers can understand what the Bible says, can use it to their advantage, can manipulate people. Um you know, we, we, I, I, uh, fact is when you turn on some of the, uh, the, the TVN preachers, that's what you find, right? Mm-hmm. These, some of the folks that you actually listen to, these are people who are, who are, who are fleecing the people of God or, or fleecing the very people, uh, that they are, that they are uh, charged with, with caring for. The fact is that this is commonplace because they borrow enough of what God has to say to work to their advantage. But what they won't do is ultimately accept the worldview by which that knowledge that they borrowed from God might be regarded as truth. Okay. So they're able to say, this is, this is a coherent system of thinking. And if you think this way, this is the result. But eventually they say, <laughs> but I don't buy it myself. You know, and, and, and that's what startles us, right? Sometimes somebody just completely walks away, just suddenly walks away, knowing that they've been living a life sometimes for years and years, and they finally given up on the lie and just walk away and, and just does tremendous damage, of course, to the church of God. And so we need to be aware of the fact, uh, that, uh, that we can deceive ourselves. And that people around us may be uh, deceived because unbelievers can know a lot. They know a lot of things, but they are unwilling to appraise truth by seeding it within that whole divine truth system. And so the unregenerate person may have knowledge, even truth, but he cannot by his own criteria possess that truth as truth and treat it as such. These are sometimes called the noetic effects of sin. You know, you ever, ever heard of nuthetic counseling? Same word here, noose. Uh, it's just a, uh, it's just a, a, a Greek word, noose, uh, which means the mind. Uh, so the effects of sin on the human mind and they are in, the sin is incredibly deceptive and pervasive in our thinking so much that we can, uh, ourselves. Okay, so positively then, total depravity means that sin has penetrated the body, the will, the affections, and the mind. We also find that the unregenerate have the capacity, the capability of committing the very worst of sins. 
In fact, as you read through Romans 1, uh, Romans 3, and elsewhere, and in Paul, he's got these famous sin lists, right? He has these lists of sins that just go on and on, and they're just sort of, you know, bruising to some of those lists, right? Uh, because these are the kinds of things that the unregenerate have the capacity to do. We find thirdly here, when the unregenerate do do righteous things, and they do, remember, we said, said that up front, they, they do things that correspond, uh, externally at least, to the expectations that God has. They do so for the wrong moments, for untoward purposes, I say here. Their righteousnesses are in the realm of form only, never substance, and is therefore not meritorious. So all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You pray, why? Not because you love God, but in order to be seen by men. Proverbs 21, 4, that's an interesting verse here. I do pick the New King James Version because uh, there's actually quite a, uh, uh, an interpretive textual question here in this verse, but I, I've inclined to be thinking uh, that this is actually the correct translation here. Uh, but a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. You scratch your head and say, what? Yeah, how, how can plowing be sin? You know, I'm starting to look at my garden here and saying, you know, it's about time to pull out the rototiller and, you know, churn it up for the year and put some, put some vegetables in. Um, and, and it says here that unbelievers can plow sinfully. And, 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 and then the point is not so much, you know, you're cursed because you hit a rock or something and chain falls off. The, the point is, if you're not doing it to the glory of God, you're doing something that's wrong. I mean, I could, I could throw in here, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, right? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And the implication is, in, the, in that whole context, right? that, 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 that whole section there on, uh, on, uh, on, uh, um, uh, freedom and, uh, and, uh, things here. And we discover here that sometimes People eat, eat things that are appropriate to eat, but they don't do it to the glory of God with the result that someone actually is caused to sin or to fall away from the faith. They're eating, which seems to, seems to us to be the most, the most neutral of things to do. Eat food, drink water. But if you don't do it in faith, it is sin, and so the conclusion is, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And so, uh, that, so, so the unregenerate do righteous things, eating, drinking, praying. And God says these things are, are sin. They're wicked. Second Timothy 3, 5, men hold to a form of godliness, but deny its power. Okay? Number four here, another implication of total depravity, is that the unregenerate person has no means of recovery. That is, no ability to please God and no desire to make overture to God for deliverance. And so here's where we add this 
extra word here, even if, you know, oftentimes you can get uh, folks uh, to track along with the first three points and say, yeah, since that, that's, you know, that's what sin does. But this point takes it a little step further. And this is, this is what sort of distinguishes the reform view from the other options that we looked at last week, Arminianism, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. And that is the fact that the picture painted by God in scripture of the effects of sin on the unbeliever is that they are totally incapable of reaching out to God. They're incapable. It is impossible for them to reach out in faith and make an appeal to God for salvation apart from, apart from the work of God in their lives. So the regenerating work of God must precede the act of faith because without that new nature, it is impossible, according to these verses here below, for someone to reach out in faith to God. Let's, let's establish this here. We, we can, we can, we can have some questions at the end, uh, but let's establish that, uh, with, with these texts and then, and then we can, and then we can sort of bandy about some of the implications. Matthew 19, 25 and 26. Who can be saved? Jesus says to them, with men, it is impossible. Okay. Remember, this is a whole, a whole, whole section that he had on, on how people come to, to faith in God and, uh, the expectation apparently of the disciples and others who, who were living at that point is that the wealthy have an advantage. You know, they, they are, they are more likely, uh, to, uh, to enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus sets, you know, sets this idea aside. No, no, a rich man is not likely, uh, to embrace God. In fact, he seems to be the most likely to, to reject God. It is easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle uh, then it, excuse me, if a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And this was just startling to them. You know, they said, well, who can be saved then? Now, there's some who have, have looked at this passage and say, well, God can't mean that because no camel can go through the eye of a needle. In fact, uh, uh, there's, there's been all sorts of Theories that have been raised that uh, maybe a camel going through the eye of a needle is is a camel going through a very small doorway that he has to sort of get down on his knees to get through. Um, in fact, there's been a whole there's been a whole theory built that you know when the when the large city gates were closed, there'd still be a little door whereby a camel could squeeze through, and it was very difficult, but it could be done. Uh, the fact is that the architecture of the day does not accommodate that. You know, when you have a city that is, that is, that it has a, has a large gate, you don't put a little door inside of it. That, that would be the, you know, just military, military, but militarily be a terrible idea to have a little door inside the gate. And so there, there is no architecture that, that, that corresponds to this theory. It, we should understand that what is, is meant is, 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 is intentional. It is impossible 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's so weird. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it's just as impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So it's a statement of inability. Who can be saved? No one. It's impossible. With men, it is impossible. Of course, we could keep going in this statement uh, by saying, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But there's the point. God has to step in to create the ability for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, just as he does a poor man. Um, but that, that is, that is a rec- that's requisite of someone responding in faith. Okay? So it's impossible for a person to save himself or to, or to even make overture to God for salvation. Uh, John 6, 44 and 65. And as we go through these, note here all of the, of the verbs of ability that are used in every one of these passages, because I think that's the importance here. No man can come. No man is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. No person can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So again, uh, the statement is curbed by this idea that God can set, God can act in such a way as to make people able to but God has to act first. With men, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. With men, it's impossible. With the Father drawing, it is possible. With men, it is impossible. But if the Father has granted it, then it becomes possible. But in, in every sense, God has to act pers- personally in order uh, for that to occur. John fourteen seventeen. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth. Cannot receive. And, of course, it's in the context of the granting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Only if the Holy Spirit is granted to a person uh, can a person respond in faith. Uh, But the world does not, you know, they've got a wall up against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to overcome that. Romans 8, I think we looked at this verse uh, already. The mind set on the flesh is death because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It cannot subject itself to the law of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So uh, the, the, the language of these verbs of ability, can or uh, able, are, are very strong here. A person who is a natural man is incapable of pleasing God. First Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. Probably the idea here is not that he can't understand what the words mean, but he, but he cannot accept them as they are. They, he can't get it because the correct appraisal of the things of the Spirit of God are appraised spiritually by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12, 13, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, it's impossible. Of course, 
it's not that they can't mouth out the words. Obviously, many unbelievers over the years have mouthed the words, Jesus is Lord. No one can say it and mean it is the point. No one can, no one can embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ except by means of the Holy Spirit. And even Ephesians 2, 1 and 8, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And so it is only by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Okay. And that's what the dead, deadness means. You are incapable of producing the faith necessary to your salvation. It is the gift of God. So all of these verses piled together make it just, to, to me, a, a, an insurmountable argument here that uh, total depravity is such, depravity is such, that it renders the individual perfectly and completely incapable of doing any good thing that would commend them to God or even to reach out to God uh, in in the very simplest form of faith. Okay? Any questions on that point? I know that's preached routinely there in that community. At the same time, I, I recognize that it's a hard it's a hard point of theology to swallow. And 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 if you want to talk it out, by by all means, uh, by all means, do so. Any any thoughts or questions on that? Sounds pretty reasonable to me. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> oh, can you hear me? <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I did hear you. So. We came in late. Yeah, we couldn't find you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm I think I'm going to say something to uh, Ken so that uh, uh, an invitation is sent out weekly just to just to remind people uh, because I I think that may be part of the reason our numbers are a little bit lower uh, tonight. I, I think the link is somewhere back in the memory of my messages, but I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it in mine either, so. Yeah. Okay. I'll, 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 I, I, I'll. Your penalty for that? Larry to the rescue. <laughs> yeah. I, I have, we, I, we always, I always had lunch on Thursdays with your pastor. Um, and we're, we're still having virtual lunch. Uh, we, we, we meet together at 1230 on Thursday in this format here. So, and we all. You don't talk, you just chew while you're. While you're looking at each other, <laughs> well, sometimes we bring some food along, but <laughs> you can't share. That's for sure. <laughs> Asks on one of the on what you've been doing. Oh yeah, we've okay. been we've been busy though. Phyllis, do you have a, a little mute uh, microphone in the corner of your screen that you can hit because we hear you a lot? I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, it is mute, but it mute Mark as well, for some reason. You have to. I'm gonna try it though. I'll shut up now. <laughs> and that happens on Paul's phone too. He can tell us. Yeah, yeah. That that probably is where the echo is coming from. It's it's really just feedback that's coming through your speakers and then coming back through again. So if you don't have your your mute uh, push, sometimes that'll happen. So. Yeah. Phyllis, we can't see, I can't see you. All I see is, uh, looks like a ceiling. Yeah. That doesn't matter. (laughs) That's better. That's better. 
Okay, so just a couple more uh, points here, and then we'll call it a night here. But a question here. How can God justly make demands of those who are unable able to meet them? And this is this is an ethical question, right? That we that that I think is a is, is one that we really need to grapple with. If in fact it's true that all these verses are accurate as they read, that it is impossible for a person to make you you know lift the smallest finger. Uh, to, to, to raise the hand and, and, and move toward God. How is it that God can say, you must do, you know, God commands all people everywhere to repent? Well, the unbeliever perhaps might respond, well, I can't. <laughs> uh, you made me this way, or, or that's, or perhaps maybe not, you made me this way, but that's the way I was born. I can't possibly do what God expects me to do. And it seems then uh, that we've got uh, some uh, unfairness or injustice in God. So I think it's something that we need to ask. How can God justly make demands of those unable to meet those demands? The classic Arminian line is this, if I ought, I can't. Okay, so if I ought to do something, it is possible for me to do so. And this is accepted by a great many as a, as a theological truism. If God says I must, then I must be able to. But the fact is, in life, that's not true, you know? You know, you, you take out a, you take out a mortgage and you lose your job and what happens? I ought to pay, but I can't. <laughs> so, so this, this, this line, if I ought, I can simply doesn't doesn't work in everyday life. You know, debt foreclosure is a form of justice expressly perpetrated against people who are unable to pay their debts. You know, someone who ought to pay his debts and can't. This isn't injustice. It's justice. So if a banker says, you must pay this, otherwise I'm going to take your house away, and you say, but I can't, What's his response going to be? Sorry, this is your obligation. It doesn't really matter whether you can pay or not. If you don't pay, the house is mine. And most of us who look at that, even though we perhaps might have some sympathy for the person who can't pay his debts, we would say, that's justice, though. It's it's just, it's, it's right, it's appropriate that that banker could seize the house. And so if a creditor in such a situation would give a break to the debtor, give him a gift, cancel his debt, we would view this not as an act of justice, but an act of grace. You know, if, if your, if your mortgage company said, you know, we recognize you're in a, in a, in a tight spot there, we're just going to write off the debt. Uh, we, you, you would look at that and you'd just be, Relieved beyond, beyond, beyond measure. Uh, because why? Because not, not because the creditor acted justly, but that he acted in mercy, right? And so, so let's bring this whole, this whole scenario over then into the theological realm. The standard of righteousness by which men are measured is not ability, but holiness. The requirement is that you be holy because God is holy. As such, God can, 
should be can, not man. Right? So God can, and in fact must, justly require perfect righteousness from his creatures. Such justice is inevitably and necessary, inevitable and necessary in God. It is only by a voluntary expression of his grace that God gives people ability. That is, he clothes people with the righteousness necessary to meeting his demands. Okay? Might add here, and I, I probably should have added it in this box here, uh, that, you know, um, even though one might say, I can't do what's right, there is still some liability attached to the fact that you gladly and willingly do what is wrong. Okay. And so I think we could perhaps add that as a sort of a second, second part of the answer to that question. Um, so it's, it's not so much that I can't, but that I gladly don't. And that's, that's our condition apart from Jesus Christ. And it's, and, and we're terribly guilty for it. Uh, so it's not a matter of our ability, uh, but what the expectation of God's holiness uh, requires. Any questions here on depravity? Okay, so we, we end somewhat abruptly here. We actually give the solution to depravity. It's sort of a, sort of a, just a peek into next semester when we talk about the doctrine of salvation. What's the solution to depravity? Well, there's only one solution to depravity, and that is regeneration. That is the impartation of a new nature. If, in fact, we act according to the dominant inclination of our natures, and our natures are corrupt, and we are born that way and cannot be otherwise, then what's the solution? We need a new nature. And that's the miracle of regeneration. So... Uh, after Paul discusses here this idea of depravity in Ephesians 2, he gives us the solution. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us used to live among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So what's the solution? You know, what, what, what can we do uh, if our sinful nature is overwhelmingly against us? Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in our transgressions. And again, it's not just an animating principle, but the idea here of regeneration is that God imparted to us a new nature. We were born from above. We were made alive. We were, our hearts were circumcised in such a way uh, that we are then rendered able and not only able, but eager to embrace Jesus Christ. And it is only from, from God. Uh, that 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 occurs. Regeneration is a work of God. It is unexpected. It's unwanted. It's undeserved. And yet it is something that God does unilaterally for his elect in order to overcome this massive problem that we all have uh, called total depravity. 
Okay. Any, any thoughts or questions as we wrap up this section on the doctrine of sin? Okay, we will call the night here. I know it's a few minutes early, uh, but we're turning the corner here into the last major section here on the doctrine of angels. And uh, we will spend the next couple of weeks talking about that. And uh, so we'll make sure that uh, everybody else gets an invite next week uh, so that we can uh, press on to the end of the course here and, and get through this last section. Mark, can I um, in, interject here? Uh, those that are having trouble getting on, if you go to your Zoom account and sign in, then there is a code here for our class. Okay, so it's so it's safe. It's two eight eight three six seven eight three five one. Yeah, and and we can and uh, I'll I'll make sure that an invitation. Well, I won't. I'll, I'll make sure somebody else sends an invitation out to everybody who's in the class, so that so that there won't be this question next week. Can you say that again? Um, please, Liz. Yes, two eight eight three six seven eight three five one. Well, thanks for coming by, and uh, we will see you, Lord willing, uh, next week.